Hey everyone, I'm Jacob Cohen Donnelly, and this is A Media Operator. This show is a discussion about building media companies for current and prospective media operators. We discuss business models, products, subscriptions, advertising, commerce, everything to help you with your media business. To learn more and to become a premium member of the newsletter, visit amediaoperator.com slash AMO podcast to receive 10% off a yearly subscription. My guest this week is Adam White, the founder and CEO of Front Office Sports. Over about an hour, we discussed how he launched FOS and the past year and a half of running it here in New York City. It's remarkable how much they have built in such a little amount of time, providing content to a prosumer audience interested in the business of sports. We dig into his business models and why he believes FOS could be the politico for sports business. I hope you enjoy this discussion. If I recall our conversations correctly, you launched Front Office Sports while you were still in college. What provoked you to launch Front Office Sports while also having to handle you know, a pretty full college class load? And you know, how did you first really get that started? Yeah, I mean, it really all started. I had went to the University of Miami as a freshman in college, born and raised in Phoenix, decided to get away for a little bit. And I really, it's funny, I never had parents who were like in a trade or a specific industry. Like I never had parents who were like, oh, you're going to be a lawyer. Or, oh, you're going to be an accountant. And so the one thing I did do growing up was I played sports. The one thing that University of Miami had was sports administration program. So Entered in the sports administration program during that time while I was there my freshman year, one of the projects and the kind of, I guess, marching statements or echoing statements that a lot of the professors made was that if you want to have success working in sports or adjacent sport or adjacent industries, it's all about who you know, not really about what you know. And so while I, you know, kind of don't totally agree with that, right? Because I think it's a mix of both. At the time as a wide-eyed freshman, I was like, all right, cool. Well, it's all about who I know. How can I find a way to make sure I know a lot of people? And so one of the things was a project that we did. And the project was you have to go out and do an informational interview. So long story short, I did the informational interview. I think I did it with the AD of the university at the time. I did that. I went back home to Arizona over the summer and I was still playing baseball at the time. And I was someone who, you know, had to kind of get a job over the summer. It was, you know, I was still paying for school and all these things. So I was looking into getting a job, interviewed at a bunch of places, you know, the traditional restaurants, but I was only home for three months. And because of that, for some reason, it just didn't work out from a serving standpoint or whatever. And because I was playing baseball at night, it just didn't make sense. And so I sat down and I was like, okay, well, what do I want to do that will allow me to use my summer effectively and also meet a lot of people who work in the space with the idea of just starting to build a casual network? And so I started to look around and my whole idea was like, well, why don't I just take what I was doing with the informational interviews and just publish them instead of just doing the informational interview and then leaving or grabbing 15 minutes on someone's uh, calendar and saying, Hey, let me pick your brain. And my whole idea was instead of saying, Hey, let me pick your brain. It was, Hey, let me tell your story. And so what happened was, is I was like, all right, well, I'm going to do this. I paid $40 for the original FOS logo that had a briefcase in it, had one of my buddies design it. I got on Wix, 
figured out how to build a Wix-based website. It was funny because this was 2014, I believe. And I, the original very first version of the site was a black background with white text. And so I joke, I was like, I was five years before dark mode was a cool thing. Like I was just too far ahead of it. And so did that originally the name was supposed to be executive report, which is funny. And I'm so glad we changed it because it was me and my dad were just talking about it. And he's like, Oh, why don't we do front office sports? And I was like, you know, that kind of makes sense for an office sports easy enough. FOS would be something that would be, um, be memorable. So over that summer and, and that whole kind of time I was back home in Arizona, I reached out to people on LinkedIn did my first interview with someone. The first interview was, I want to say two hours long. I realized that by the time I had to transcribe that two hour long interview, that if I wanted to do this, I could not do a two hour long interview. Uh, so pulled everything down, got like five or six questions that I got really good at asking and ended up doing 110 informational interviews over that first year. And that's kind of how it all started. You know, I'm curious, you know, just because I, you know, I like sports, perhaps not as much to, you know, launch a business around it, but I do, yeah. you know, I do enjoy it. When you started college, was the idea that you wanted to become a GM of a team? I had literally no idea if I'm going to be completely frank with you. I really had no idea. And <laughs> it's so funny. I, you know, I love the sports industry and I love where we sit in the sports industry, but even now I don't even know if I would work in the sports industry, right? After all of the things that, that I've learned and just kind of the area and the fascination I've had with media. So I don't know if I'll ever use my degree for anything outside of FOS. We'll see how it all kind of transpires. But yeah, I, I really had no idea. I mean, you know, everyone talks about being an agent. Everyone talks about being this. Uh, I, I just kind of went in with an open mind. It was like, all right, well, I'll just figure it out. I've, I've kind of always been that type of person where... I'll just get into a situation and, and kind of figure it out eventually. However, you know, the cookie crumbles. I think by the time I graduated in 17, I was definitely more along the lines of like the partnerships, sponsorships, you know, sales side of things. I thought it was interesting. I had, you know, built packages for FOS at the time. And so I was like, oh, I like being creative. I like, you know, doing those types of things. I think it kind of brings everything full circle. And so for me, that was that was kind of like where I had actually applied um, when I was going to leave school. And it's so funny because I joke with people that front office sports up until really 2018 was just meant to get me a job in the sports industry. And it's funny because it like failed. Like I never actually got a job in the sports industry. I did two like finalist interviews where they flew me out in 17 after I graduated and I didn't get them. So I just decided to go all in on the site at that time. But it is funny that the original kind of uh, credence and kind of desire for what I wanted to do with the the site and never really played out how I wanted it to. If the goal really was for you to find a job, were you were you using the interview just to get in the front door, or were you actually thinking about how to build an audience when you know you were using that you know black background Wix website? Yeah, uh, you know, really for me at the time, it was the first, the first few, first, I want to say year, it was really just all about how can I meet a lot of cool people and just interview people. I don't think, I don't think I really thought it could start to be a site and still, until people started like, or start to be a real business until people started to ask us to do things, right? Like everything we've done, and it's so funny because I've told the story before, but everything we've done is really based on the feedback of our audience and, and early on is the fact that, Essentially, what happened was when I was doing all those interviews is I was asking all the people and the professionals who were working in the space, like, 
what do you like, what do you don't like, what's missing, etc. And so even though we had no money, and I still tell people this to this day, like I guarantee you, if I would have gotten money for FOS when I was a freshman, I would it would not be successful uh, because I would have never known what to do with it. And so essentially those four years while I was at school and the, and the year after that I worked on it before we got the investment was just essentially a, a big type of like market research study that I did. And I just kept asking people like, what do you want? How do you see this working out? What's, what's missing? What, what do you need? Et cetera, et cetera. And so for those first four years, yeah, it was all just kind of really built around building relationships, giving myself some sort of, I wouldn't say social or prominence, but more of like people, if they saw my name, they knew who I was because they associated me with FOS. And luckily all of those conversations allowed me to kind of say, okay, you know, one of the big things and one of our big projects is rising 25, which is like our, our award, our big award. And it came out of the idea that I talked to a lot of people who were younger in the space who were saying like, Oh, there's just nothing for us. And so we decided to build something for them. And so I, I do look back on it and say, oh, and I laugh because I'm like, you know, during the time I was like, man, I wish I had, you know, some more help or I wish I had some of this, like when I was still in school, but I genuinely believe that because I didn't and because it was all through school and because it was built around just asking people questions and getting their insight into the, the space, it was something that I thought, you know, now pay dividends because we were able to execute on everything that we had been told people wanted once we got the investment. So yeah, you know, again, it was never, it was really just supposed to be to meet people, to get me a job and maybe be something like that was a side hustle when I, once I got a job. All right. So you decide after college, you know, to, to do this full time, you're going to become a media operator. When you were looking at the space, you know, who were some of the competitors that you looked at that you kind of did some research on, you know, and then what did you see that they were doing wrong that you could do better? For us, I think the biggest thing and the two things that we've always focused on and will continue to focus on is we want to own the inbox and we want to own uh, and we want to own social media, right? Like how can we be the best in the inbox and how can we be the best on social media? And for the longest time, that's where I think the places that we we look to as competitive sets just kind of ignored. And I always thought, well, like, okay, if, if we can take the best of what people are doing on social media, multiple accounts, and do it from a brand perspective in a professional and premium way, this is some really interesting stuff. And at the time, this was really early on, 2017, that's just before like the business of sports had kind of gotten in vogue. It was a little bit more, it was, you know, some athletes had started to, it's amazing what's changed in three years. Some athletes had started to invest in companies and all of these different things. And so that's the one area where I was just like, okay, you know, as long as we focus on delivering a newsletter every single day that we can hopefully scale, that we write and execute in a way that's not only interesting for people who work in sports, but is, is interesting for people uh, outside of sports too. Because like my whole guiding light and, and you talk about competitive sets, but the whole, the whole inspiration and what I see as like the one media business that is like something that I want to be as a media business one day is Politico. And we've talked about this before and where Politico built such an amazing business by taking free consumer facing news around a broad based subject like politics and building vertical specific paid products eventually. Right. As, as you guys know. Um, and so my whole idea at the time was that like, 
okay, if Politico can do it with politics, why can't we do it with like sports and not just sports, but the business of sports, right? Like it's a $600 billion industry sports is, but no one in our opinion had really ever covered it as a true business industry. Like you see Bloomberg covers real estate finance, right? They cover them like you would cover a true business industry, but traditionally sports had been covered like sports where it was player X or athlete X doing something on the field first. And then no one really talking about what was going on off the court. There was a few people, but it was like in spits and spats, right? Bloomberg had one person. ESPN had one person. Yahoo maybe had one person. Wall Street Journal maybe had one person. But no one said, hey, look, we're going to devote our whole thing to it, our whole publication to it. And then the other side of the coin is that I just felt that the business of sports, while yes, can be, you know, more of a niche play and more of a, you know, an endemic industry endemic play that it's, it's far broader and far more interesting than just to, to the people who work in sports. And that was kind of the approach we wanted to take is that when we started to build everything is we wanted to be an approachable, but premium brand that people came to for news and insights around what was going on at the business of sports. And the competitive advantage we've had for so long is that everything we've been delivering has never had a paywall. Whereas our closest competitors have, you know, a paywall, a hard paywall, like very hard paywall, extremely high dollar paywall. And so that's been what has allowed us to really kind of take some of not only the market share, we believe that's internally in the space where we like to call endemic, but also we're able to grab a lot of people who are not traditionally, maybe would have been exposed to this stuff because they, yes, they're interested, but would they have paid the subscription for the high paywall? So that's that's what we looked at. I looked at Politico and I was like, look, if they can do it with politics, I think I think we can do it with sports. And that's what we're still building to. I, I still do believe that to this day. And so we just felt like going back to your original question that people hadn't done everything for verticalized, like not verticalized media, but for verticalizing everything, right? Like they didn't treat platforms differently. Like Twitter, we treat very differently than Instagram, which is very different than LinkedIn, which is very different than our newsletter, which is very different than our owned and operated site. And still to this day, I don't think they, anyone in our competitive set do that. But like, that's the whole idea is that they're different platforms for different reasons. And we felt if we could optimize for each of those platforms, deliver a newsletter that's built for reading in the, in the email versus linking out uh, social content that's built for sharing on social, that's built for you know, consumption in the feed versus linking out, going hard on LinkedIn, which again, as I feel like is an underutilized platform, but for us is our fastest growing one and is going to be on pace to likely be our largest by the end of this year, even though we just started posting more frequently at the beginning of the, at the beginning of 2019. Um, you know, those are kind of the weaknesses in the areas that we thought. And then we also thought it was like, like we can actually build like a, a real brand here. Like there's something about taking an approachable way. And I think this is, luckily it wasn't at the time, but when I was first doing it, because it was so personal and so one-on-one, people got like attached to front office sports and the FOS brand. And our whole idea is that we want people to know us as front office sports, but we want people to, to really know us as FOS. And if you know us as front office sports, like you may be a casual reader, but if you know us, know, know us as FOS, you either follow us on social, you you know, come to our events, 
right? You, you know us, you've gotten our merch, you've, you know, attended a webinar, whatever it is, you know us more than just front office sports. And that's how we've always been like our audience funnel. It's like, yeah, front office sports is who we are, but we want everyone to know us as FOS and what gets them to that funnel where they become so ingrained in our, in our, you know, audience development funnel or, you know, our content production that they know us truly as FOS or they call us as FOS or someone says FOS and they're like, Oh, I know exactly what that is. And I think, again, that's, that's been kind of like the, the progression as we've, as we've seen, whereas like, I don't know, I just don't believe that others may have kind of taken advantage of that opportunity. And I think the other single thing, and I've talked about it in nauseum, but you know, there's just the fact that we were that we were active on social and built a following that that really cared about the brand there first has helped us in a lot of different ways, which, you know, traditional, I would say, you know, B2B publications, which, you know, I think we're starting to kind of not grow out of that, but like we're moving into the next phase of where we see our publication sitting that I just don't think anyone's ever really taken advantage of that, especially sports. It's sexy. It's one of the sexiest industries in the entire world. Like why can't, why can't there be a publication that covers it like that, that looks like that? That's why we just did the redesign of the site. That's why we just did the redesign of the logo because we want, when people come to FOS, we want them now to think about it like, wow, this is on the echelon of the, the Wall Street Journal, the Politicos, the Bloombergs of the world, but it's covering sports versus some of the other things that they're covering. So I know I kind of went through multiple different layers of that question, but um, that's that's kind of the areas in which we saw where weaknesses saw as someone who was, who did it really well. And we kind of could not emulate, but, you know, look at what they did it for their model and potentially, you know, take what's best practices from them and apply it to us. And then kind of how we see it playing out going forward too. I don't really believe in every business idea needing to be some insanely innovative idea. You know, like you and I've talked about, it's, it's more on the execution than anything else. Um, so I think that that's a great, you know, looking at what Politico had built and it's a, it's a tremendous success and most people don't really talk about it, but I really think it's, you know, it's a good example of, like you said, a publication that started as a consumer facing publication with this, you know, now they've got a really robust, expensive membership business. Um, I actually want to lean into that just a little bit. You know, I was, when I was doing research for this, you know, you, you don't actually like to call yourself a B2B publication. You, you, you say that you're more of a prosumer publication. Yeah. What does that mean? And how should other operators who either already have publications or are thinking about launching their own publication, how should they think about audience through the lens of a prosumer? It's something that we've, yeah, and we've leaned into and, and, uh, you know, leaning on the political side of things too. I know you touched about their, their massive thing. It just fascinates me because, I think I went on and I'm just like, I'm just like so fascinated by their business, but I went on, you know, similar web or some audience thing. And I think they did like something like a hundred million unique visitors in, in, um, what was it in May or in March at the beginning of the pandemic, right. Or at the height of, you know, just the early parts of the pandemic. And then I went and looked at how many subscribers they had. And they said they have like 30,000 paying subscribers. I don't know if that's enterprise or if that's individual, but I'm like, wow, like if you can get a massive scaled audience and then build a really targeted thing that you can charge a lot of money for, I really like that. So wanted to close the loop on that. But yeah, so from a prosumer standpoint, I just think, and I don't know if it works for everyone, right? But in the sports side of things, it definitely works because I just don't want 
us to be seen as, you know, an only sports industry publication because technically what is the sports industry? Now the sports industry is, and this is the one area where I don't think anyone has ever from a quote unquote business of sports publication has ever touched. They're not covering Nike and Adidas and Under Armour. We're now doing it, right? Like covering earnings, covering those types of things, talking about them. That's, that to me is like, okay, the sports industry isn't just teams and leagues. And so that's what we always say. We say we cover the sports industry and adjacent industries that are having some sort of influence on sports versus sports and then the subsets of the sports industry. So like you have sports and then you have the subsets being, you know, maybe it's like sponsorship, maybe it's ticketing and venues, maybe it's facilities. All of that's great. But for us to build what we think is going to be a really big publication one day is that we want to cover the sports industry, but okay, Nike and fitness and college athletics and real estate and retail and investing and tech and innovation. Because at the end of the day, and and this is what we've always said, oftentimes, especially now, all athletes want to be business people. All business people were either former athletes or want to be athletes still. And that goes across most industries, right? It's not just, um, it's not just in the industry. It's not just in sports. And so it's crazy because as the pandemic kind of shut down what was going on on the field, our business actually got more important off the field and our audience grew exponentially outside of the people or for people outside of quote unquote, what would be endemic to the sports industry, which we define as teams leagues for the most part. Right. Um, and so the idea with prosumer is that it's a professional publication that people who work in said industry also will read, but it's done in a way that a consumer quote unquote, who would be someone who is a a marketing executive at an agency that may not have to be involved with sport, but is interested in sports would also be able to access or read or enjoy. And so that's the whole idea is writing it as like, I just think that there's a bigger opportunity here than just saying we're going to focus only on the stakeholders at teams and leagues for the most part versus no, we're going to focus on the biggest brands. Like perfect example, one of the biggest brands in sports is Fanatics. They just raised $350 million at a $6.2 billion valuation. That's much larger than just the sports industry, right? Like Jerry Jones, the owner of the Dallas Cowboys has a bunch of things, quote unquote, outside sports, but he's still intersected with sports, right? So there's this idea where you have this kind of confluence of everything is either influenced or influenced by, or is is either influencing or influenced by sports, right? Culture, fashion, music, um, advertising, marketing, what's going on? So that's the approach we've taken with the idea that this is something that can be much bigger if you take a bigger approach to it, right? Like, and, and it's not really a bigger approach from an execution standpoint. We can still execute the content that we execute, but we're writing it in a way that even just simple headline tweaks, right? Like or simple, simple execution of content where instead of talking to one or two people, maybe it's like, this is a, this is an example from recent, right? Like we're talking uh, instead of saying the Denver Nuggets do X, Y, Z, all right, now it's NBA teams do, doing something in the bubble, right? Just even doing that changes that conversation, changes the approach, changes the, I would say, the desirability of that content from a small subset of people to a larger group of people, right? We write about Top Golf, not like 
would you define Top Golf as sports? I would define Top Golf as sports, but it's also one of the biggest entertainment companies in the world. They're in the esports now. So that's the thing is, is like we see these big these big companies and the sports teams, especially now more than ever, right? Coming out of the pandemic, I think you'll see a lot more of the diversification from the sports team side of things. But it's just gotten to the point where the industry is so much larger than that. And our whole idea is that people like you, people that are sitting in at JP Morgan's investment banking desk and are interested in, you know, not just what's going on on the field, but what's going on off the field, they need a resource or they need a publication to provide them with that. And that's what we want to do. And I don't think by doing that, you alienate either side, right? It maybe is a little bit of a balance and you can maybe go back and forth where some days it might be more consumer, some days it might be more pro, but the idea is that if you find a good balance, it becomes a business that like you can go out and we can go out and get deals with RBC. We can go out and get advertising deals with Anheuser-Busch, right? Like those aren't endemic brands usually, like those aren't brands that are usually spending with quote unquote B2B brand or B2B publications. So our thought is like, okay, the other thing about all of this too, is I, I've just, I've never gotten it because maybe, uh, I don't know, I'm just, I'm, I'm still young, but I've just never gotten why a lot of these brands tend to shy away from more professional publications when I'm like, all of these people are highly qualified. All of them are usually professional and no offense to a marketing or a, a marketing director at, a, at an agency or a team or whatever. They don't just want to see software pitched their way or software ads, right? They buy stuff too, right? Like they're consumers too. Like they buy belts. They buy maybe in a you know pre-pandemic time, they buy technology, they buy watches, they buy, you know what I mean? And so that's the other thing, even in market that we have to, you know, kind of pitch when we're talking to our advertisers is like, yes, is a professional business professional audience, but these business professional people have a higher net worth, are more driven with an intent to buy. And they're also have the opportunity to have more free available money to buy whatever it is you're doing. So it's definitely for a specific subset of advertisers, but that's the idea about the whole prosumer model. If we bring it back to the center here is that we're writing and we're building a publication that people who are professionals can enjoy, people who are consumers can enjoy. And because of that, then you open up a different level of brand dollars that you wouldn't have had if you would have just stayed on the professional side, which traditionally professional side, you're looking at B2B endemic revenue, which you know we all in the different places would understand. Those are the people who are selling directly to the people in the space. B2B non-endemic revenue. So those would be people like selling solutions to, to any business professional like Oracle and Adobe or however you want to kind of put that. And then there's brand dollars. And I would quite frankly be remiss if I would say like I just don't know many that many publications that can do B2B endemic, B2B non-endemic, and then brand dollars. And for us, we think that kind of A limit or allows us to make sure we spread our diversification opportunities, which is a big thing, right? Especially now. Uh, and then B, it, it, we don't get like right now when no one is buying anything at sports teams and leagues and all of the endemic partners have shut down their spending for the most part, we're not as hurt by that because we still have non-endemic in brands. Whereas people who would maybe have leaned into the endemics, you're not as big of an opportunity. And from a sports space, people tend to forget at a high level, you're probably looking at what across the four major leagues, there's four 
four, uh, there's 30 teams on average between the four major leagues, five if you add an MLS. So you're looking at 150 to 200 teams. It's a really small market if you're looking at it, right? Like, so for us, it's like, okay, those are the key customers, quote unquote, at the, at the base. And now is how do we expand beyond that? So I know it's getting a little wordy, but that's the whole idea with prosumer, especially in sports. I don't know if it works for other publications. It may, but for us, we believe it does just because sports is such a universal language. And most people, regardless of where they're, they're at in their business life, are interested in some sort of this. That's why LinkedIn has become such a massive driver for us is because there's a lot of people that are business professionals on the platform. And if you look at like our, you know, our last 10,000 new followers on LinkedIn, it's like Deloitte, EY, JP Morgan Chase. You know what I mean? So it's like those types of things where they're not traditional to the sports space per se, but they're interested in what's going on off the field. No, I think that that's a, uh, that's a great way to think about it. Um, having that sort of baked in excitement from an audience that is not explicitly just working within the field and being able to look at the adjacent agent uh, industries does give you more to write about and does give you more diversity, but diversity to the, uh, you know, to your advertiser base. So I, I, I like that. Yeah. And I even think too, like as part of that, like the one challenge that, and this is what I, 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 I think more publishers are starting to think about, but like my challenge to ourselves and our team is like, Every single day, if we're not the most innovative in this space, then what do we got to do to even write about it? Like, how can we say something's innovative if we're not the ones who are doing innovative stuff? If we're not the one who are launching initiatives, if we're not the ones who are looking at content uh, strategies differently, if we're not the ones who are doing that. And I think, especially in, uh, in the B2B space, a lot of the publications, older ones that have been around a while have kind of rested on the fact that we're going to get our subscription, we're going to get our awards, we're going to get our events, and we really don't have to change a thing because as long as we get that, we're in a good spot. And I'm personally under the impression that I feel like that has stymied a lot of the growth of some of these industries because of the fact that if the publication that everyone reads every single day is 10 years behind the rest of the world from a content strategy standpoint, from the usage of social media, from a usage of... like. How is that pushing that industry forward? So that's even why we start to go out and branch out and write about, you know, I mean, we should no matter what, but like, that's why such a big focus for us is on the deals and the markets and things like that, because we're trying to even open our audience's eyes to new things to make them think outside the box as to even like, okay, if I'm thinking about Peloton, cause we cover them a lot too, right? Like, if I'm thinking about Peloton and I work at a sports team, what can I think about that Peloton is doing from a community standpoint that I can apply to what we're doing from a community standpoint? And like, those are the ways that we've kind of approached this, this idea is like, yeah, we're not only trying to, we're not only trying to just tell the news and things like that. We're also trying to get people to think more critically and see that, yes, while the sports industry may be you know, externally people think of sports, they think of teams and leagues, it's much broader than this. And people who work at teams and leagues or agencies should all be taking ideas from each other. So if we're not doing the most from an innovative standpoint, if we're not forward thinking from a brand standpoint, if we're not like perfect example, Rising 25, which is our big award, Anheuser-Busch is the presenting partner on it. We did um, 
we did a merch collab with Umbro and we built an entire soccer team, like a digital and physical manifestation of a soccer team, Rising 25 F- FC, where we actually had kits that had Anheuser-Busch's logo on them. We sold a jersey patch to RBC, right? Like most, I don't know of any other, you know, prosumer or if you want to label it as a b2b side of things whoever done that and like or even just brands right so i'm just like okay we have to continue to push the needle because if we don't then how can we go and tell our audience what's good what's up and coming what's next right we don't have any room to say that if we're not doing it and so again i don't know if that's something that's you know happening across these different news publications or these new new media companies but that's how we see it and correct me if I'm wrong, it was the beginning of 2019 that you went out and convinced investors that front office sports was worth was worth you know more than just a college kid's, you know, I'm going to keep teasing it, black background, white text website. Uh, and that, it, you know, it, it could be something, you know, the politico of sports. You know, how much did front office sports wind up raising and, and, and how did that change your, you know, your, your psychology around what you were building? Yeah. So the, it's so funny. I mean, it was like, it was just one of those situations where it happens to be like, you happen to be in one of these, uh, where you're like, it, it, I can't remember the saying it's like, you, it's better off lucky than good or whatever. I think we just put ourselves in a place to be lucky. And so I'll tell you how this all happened. All happened on Twitter of all places. So if you guys are, I don't, I, I don't know if it's, you know, the, the best place to do it, but for us it worked. Um, and I think Twitter still to this day is, is so much more powerful than most people use it to be. But so what happened was, is I was listening to a Digiday podcast of all things. And the Digiday podcast had a guy by the name of Jason Stein on it. Jason at the time was running 24-7 Laundry Service. It was an agency that had been bought by Wasserman a few years prior. He was talking about what he had done and everything like that. I quote tweeted the episode, or I think I quote tweeted his tweet about the episode. At the time, I was following him. He followed me. And it just so, again, happened to be that from the main FOS account, we had shared a video that Cycle, which was the sister brand to Laundry Service, which was kind of like the content side of Laundry Service and Cycle or Laundry Service, uh, had built or had produced a video that our audience would like. We shared it. It went did really well. I mean, really great numbers. And so I sent it to him. I was like, hey, like, if you guys have anything, just like, let me know. We're always looking for good stuff to share for our audience. Happy to help, whatever. And I think that's one of the things we've always tried to do, no matter what, is just like lead with value in a lot of the conversations we had early on. And so did that. And he got back to me and we started to chat via DM, nothing crazy. Um, you know, back and forth a couple of times, I kept doing what I was doing. I want to say a month later, I was being, I would say, I wouldn't say more than, I wouldn't say emotional on the TL, but I was definitely being more in my feelings on the timeline. And it was on something that I normally do, but I think I tweeted, it's amazing what can happen in a year. And Jason saw it and sent it to me in a DM and he said, let me know how I can help. And so I was like, well, shit. Okay, perfect. So I told him, I said, Hey, I want to get on a call. Let's chat. We chatted in early April of 2018 and it just so happened to be going to um, New York in June of 2018. So, you know, before that, probably a week or a half or two before that, I had gotten his assistance uh, after we got off the call because his assistant set it up. I had gotten his assistant's email. And I basically harassed him. I was like, dude, like, when is Jay around? Whatever, whatever, whatever. And so we eventually set a time for us to meet in, in Brooklyn at their office. And 
So I went to New York, we met in person. It was the, you know, me just like walking into, you know, a 600 person agency office, like underneath the Brooklyn bridge. It was insane. Like absolutely insane. I'm sitting in this office and we're just talking about it. And at the time he had told me that he was leaving the agency. So I think it, you know, his, his time was pretty much done. I think his earnout was up, whatever he was on to what's next. And he's like, I don't know what I want to do, but I want to find a way to work with you. And so I was just like, what? Like, this is crazy. And so I went back and Russ, who's been with me since the very beginning, for the most part, was also in New York. And I was talking to him about it. So from that time in June of 2018 till really November of 2018, Jason, myself, and then Billy, uh, who's one of the people who worked with Jason, we just all chatted about what it would look like. And so, you know, you see Shark Tank and you think investments are all like this scary stuff or whatever, but it really wasn't. Like we just kind of chatted through kind of that, what this could be, how much we think we would need, what it would look like, how do we get it off the ground, like, you know, X, Y, Z, Y, W, P. And so it really just became, okay, this is what we're thinking, what the number is, this is what it looks like, and this is what we think we can do with it, and, and here we go. And so, yeah, we, we ended up raising money at the end of 2018. Uh, we raised less than seven figures. And it was really just like a small, small amount of money, like in the grand scheme of things, right? It's not a small amount of money in the whole, on the whole side of things, but it was a small money in the grand scheme of media. And the whole idea was like, okay, figure it out and see if this works. And what happened was, as I, I think I hinted at it earlier in the conversation was, is that we were able to... Basically, then I moved to New York. I remember this to this day. I moved to New York from Miami, uh, Black Friday of 2018. I actually rented my apartment sight unseen. They sent me the key. I got to my apartment in New York and I thought that I had gotten hoodwinked because when I first got there, the door didn't open and I was freaking out. I was like, Are you serious? I have like five bags. My entire life was in my bags. And I was like, are you kidding me? I eventually figured out how to get in and I got in. But so yeah, moved to New York in 2018. And essentially what I was, what I was talking about earlier is that we took all of what we knew in that part of that 2018 side of things. And we said, or before that, right. When the lead up to that, and we said, look, everyone has told us what they want. Let's just go out and give them what they want. Now hire the editorial team, started to make some other hires and really all of it and I, I thank Anheuser-Busch to this day because uh, I forgot to mention this, but as all of this investment stuff was happening, we had had Rising 25 for two years prior to Anheuser-Busch coming on. And it was a smaller event. And I just happened to meet the person who runs the sports division of Anheuser-Busch at a conference in Chicago. And we were talking and I figured out his cadence of emails that he always responded to emails on Sunday. And so one Sunday, and I want to say May or June, I sent him an email and I said, Hey, we have this rising 25 thing. I think it would be a massive success if you guys aligned with it. And we talked back and forth. He said, send me a proposal. I sent him a proposal and he's like, yeah, this is great. We can do this. And I think to this day, that is what really like us saying that we had Anheuser-Busch is really what kind of helped put the investors, early investors at not at ease, but like, okay, these guys can actually generate money here. Right. And so that's what we did is we just went out and, you know, we took what we had learned over the course of the four years. We already had zero dollars. And I, I always laugh and I tell people, I say, one of the hardest things ever, and I guess really in any type of business, but 
is to build a media company with zero dollars, zero experience. I'm, I've never been a journalist, but I was writing everything. I was managing contributors back in the day uh, and zero following. Like we built it from zero of zero of zero and it took us four years to do it. But then once we got the money, it was just like, okay, now we can execute on everything that we've been having people tell us for the first four years where we made $5,000 or whatever it was, right? And that's really just what it came down to be. And then we did that and you know, we went from one to 14 and one to 14 people in the first year of 2019. And then, you know, we're at, we're at 17 going on probably 20 now, um, as we come out of this. And, you know, that's something that is, is kind of crazy when you look back at it. It's like, even to think about it, we've only had full-time employees for a year and a half and actually, you know, a year full without a pandemic, a year and 10 months or a year and excuse me, a year and two months, without a pandemic and then we had the pandemic right so obviously changed a little bit but yeah it's it's a business while it feels like it's been 50 years that we've been doing it just because it, it, it's been you know so much that we've kind of been able to to hash through it's really only been a year and a, and, and change since we got the investment and hired our first full-time person and we've even really had it, it took us till really six months into us getting the investment to even have like a full-time editorial team. So we've had an editorial team for basically just a year. And so that's why we're so bullish on just actually finally getting everything and all of these pieces together, because we can really take advantage of where, where we see this going. Um, and it took us a little bit. I was a first time founder. I was 23 at the time. Like why does someone who I've met on Twitter <laughs> and met in person once and had conversations with over the course of the time, decide to give the 23-year-old some money to, to help launch the business after we had done what we'd done. To this day, I don't know, um, but it's I guess it's worked out for everyone so far. But there's just so much more work to be done. We're nowhere close where, to where we want to be. I've always believed that there is underlying value on Twitter that will never show up in their share price associated with being a, like a, a true connector of people. Some of, my, some of my closest media friends – People who like I really actually will classify as friends. I've met like once, but I DM with them uh, every day. Yeah, it's a great equalizer. It's a great equalizer. It's crazy. If you don't use Twitter like in a clean way, like you know, you gotta you gotta clean up the feed and stuff because it can get a pretty pretty nasty just reading all the doom scrolling and stuff. But uh, yes. you know, uh, if if you if you if you treat it you know like a, a place to get good information and meet cool people, it's it's really interesting. I want to, I want to jump into some really tactical stuff with you. Um, you know, we talked, we talked a couple of times now about rising 25. Um, you know, I, I I really want to dive into that part of your business, but before we do, you know, would it be fair for me to say that you are a predominantly advertising driven business? Yes. hundred percent. Yep. And how do you, how do you sell these ads? You know, is it on a, on a CPM basis or, or do you sell it more of like a, a time-based share of voice and you know why that choice whichever it is yeah it really just depends on the client right um most of them are done on a on a cpm basis um but it, it just depends like some of the some of the campaigns like or when you want to get more creative like the brand campaign stuff it's it's more you know share of voice and kind of what we value the creativity at so like anheuser-busch getting a soccer team right like you can't I don't know how to put a value on that. Right. But like having everyone share it, I can't even track some of the impressions. So 
that's just more on like the idea we're selling to. Uh, but traditionally, all of our media, straight media stuff has done been done off of CPM. And then because, you know, we've grown up being able to execute B2B media campaigns, which are all predominantly lead gen driven, that's a major component to a lot of them too. It really depends again on the client, right? So someone like RBC wants something different than someone like Satisfy Labs, which is an AI brand uh, that works uh, in sports directly. So um, I think that's that's traditionally what we've been able to lean on is that we're going to sell it on a, a CPM basis or a lead gen uh, basis and, and then be able to charge a premium for the amount of leads we can we can drive. Now, I want to ask this next question just because it, it always made me laugh. And I think when I first saw it on your site, uh, you know, I my background's obviously I work in crypto media. Yeah. You, you had uh, a podcast where you had Bitrex as the sponsor. <laughs> and Bitrex, for those that don't know, is a crypto exchange. You can buy and sell uh, probably 200 different assets. How did that deal happen? And, and then we'll move on because I know it's, it's not the point of this conversation, but I just have to know. Yeah, I mean, it's just like, this is like the whole, I can't tell you, I still to this day don't know how we made it out of that first year, to be honest with you, of like, just all the shit we threw against the the, the thing, the, the first year post-funding, all the shit we threw against the fan, hoping that for it to stick and some of these things sticking. So yeah, the podcast, this is the crazy part, is the podcast, and the only reason that we had Bitrix, and the only reason we really got the podcast was because of the fact that originally we had an NFL player who was into Bitcoin was going to be the host of the podcast. So we were going to do a collaboration where he was going to be the host. He was going to interview people and Bitrix was going to be the partner because he was into Bitcoin. That's how it all came to be at the 11th hour. After we had signed everything, had built everything out for Bitrix, the NFL player pulled out. Well, me knowing the value of a dollar as you know, I mean, I don't know what you want to qualify it as a media startup, but as some a media startup that didn't raise a lot of money, I was like, well, I'm not going to let this podcast or this dollar go away. So I was just like, we'll figure it out. I will do the podcast personally, and we'll just do all the guests we'd already booked. And the thing was, is the NFL player was based in Los Angeles. And so a lot of the guests we'd already booked were in Los Angeles. <laughs> so I booked myself a flight to Los Angeles. I spent a week in LA. I recorded a bunch of podcasts. I came back to New York, did a bunch more. And the whole idea and the the whole reason why we did it and we kept them is because it was just a sizable check that we weren't going to let go away. And so I was just like, I'm going to do this. And I I, I don't know how we'll figure it out, but we'll figure it out. And luckily there, people believed in it and loved it and were able to stick around with it. But that's why originally it was, it it was more of a brand fit when we had the, the NFL player who was into Bitcoin. It became a little bit weird when we didn't have the NFL player who was into Bitcoin. So that's how the deal came about. Um, but as any early founder will tell you, you just can't let any money go. And so I was not about to let any money go. I appreciate that. I, uh, it just it always made me laugh when I saw that. Um, but you know, I think you know when you and I first met, the part of your business that really really intrigued me was your awards franchises, uh, and you've got. Uh, two of them right now, the rising 25 and the best employers in sports. Um, You know, what, what intrigued me about this and I, you know, I kind of want you to walk me through this is there are actually two components of, of this business. There is the actual awards component or, or the, the, you know, sponsorship of the awards, but then there's also a licensing component to it. So can you walk us through like how, you know, how you came up with those ideas 
how those two business models work either together or, or despite each other. And, you know, how do you price it? Um, and then, you know, I'm curious how you think other media companies could, could do this for their own industries. Yeah. So again, rising 25, uh, for us was really basically, like I said, just something that came out of the idea that we felt that if we drew a line at that age, we would have a dam for most people who are 25 and under who would come through. And then once we got them there, we would have brand advocates for life, right? Because it's, it's just, I, I can't tell you, it's so strange how much more meaningful it is to win a, an award at that age than it is anywhere other, because like all you have these things from a, a premium side of things, right? You have the opportunity to basically, you know, advance your career, et cetera. And so we were able to kind of tap into that, which I think was the the most positive part about Rising 25. And so the business model with Rising 25 getting into that is just how do we align brand partners who want to be associated with a lot of young people who are doing really great things and a really cool franchise. And so that's where Anheuser-Busch came in. And then once we got Anheuser-Busch, it was like, okay, who else can we get? So this year we had Anheuser-Busch, RBC, Royal Bank of Canada, uh, Indochino, Bose, and La Liga. La Liga is a soccer league, so it was a little interesting, but because everything this year was soccer-themed, that's why it made sense for some of these. Bose we had as like the official headphone. Indochino was the official style partner. Um, and we just really kind of treated it as a true piece of property. And I've always gone back to the thought of like, it's so important to have what we believe is a hub-and-spoke model where – front office sports is at the hub of this media business. And then the spoke are spokes are all of these other, what we like to call monetizable IP that we've built off the fact that people trust and read and pay attention to front office sports. So as long as I have your attention on front office sports, I'm pretty sure I can then either pivot that attention to other spokes like rising 25, or we can build other things around it. So Rising 25 was our first spoke of monetizable IP. And then from there, we went into best employers. And again, this was something that we had gotten a lot of feedback on. And I think you'll probably see this common theme is that we're just so close to the industry. People oftentimes tell us what they want to see and then we execute it. So best employers was come came from the idea that people were looking for who were the best employers in sports, hence the name. But they really couldn't find out. They couldn't find a what was a non-biased kind of list. They couldn't find what was something that was is, is about as data-driven and analytical as possible. And so I just happened to come across a person who used to work at uh, Statista who kind of understood how all of their awards strategy works with Forbes and some of these other ones. And so we built Best Employers with the idea that everything was survey-driven it's 100% decided by the employees. No one's going to be, it's, there's no pay. You don't have to, you don't pay to get into the award. And the idea with that was, is that if people win the award, then they have the opportunity to license like their best employers and sports logo. To be honest with you, first year did not go like we wanted to. I thought our brand was way more important than it honestly was. I think, <laughs> I just think we overshot the moon. We charged too much for the license. It was a little bit herky jerky because it was the first year we had done it. We had seen the success we had with rising 25. I remember even the projections we had for the license business. It was, it was insane. We're like, Oh, we're going to crush this, blah, blah, blah. Everyone's going to 
be paying. Well, you don't then forecast, hey, it's an end of the year award. People already had their budget spent. It's a first year award. People don't really know what the impact is going to be like. So yeah, that was the idea with that one. And I think, you know, it'll be interesting to see if we, if we do more or if we just really double down on those, because I still think that those can be really big franchises themselves between rising 25 and, and best employers with the idea that, you know, our, our business core business is content. I want our focus to be a hundred percent on that. But with then the idea that these kind of spokes become an area that creates stickiness, right? Rising 25 people are always going to be around. They're going to help us in business. They're going to help us, whatever it is, best employers in sports. That's going to be a nice database that we create that we can then sell to a branded partner, you know, conversation, create white papers, et cetera. So, you know, it's changed a little bit, but best employers in sports is on the licensing side, rising 25s on the brand side. Uh, and we're going to continue to kind of experiment with those, right? Like I still think there's an opportunity for best employers to be both uh, a brand side of things, because I think a lot of brands want to be associated with something like that and a licensing play too. So um, again, as you can probably tell someone who's never been in the media, I just look at what all these other media companies do. And I say, how can we apply that to our business? That makes sense. Like best employers is not a new award, right? It's whatever best employers of X, right? Like everyone has it for the most part, but no one had it in sports. And so I was like, well, let's get out in front of it and do that you know, as immediately as we can. So then we have that stake in the ground. I've certainly thought about that as a a model. I've talked about that, you know, with some other people, just because it's an interesting, uh, you know, allowing the HR department to license the best employer logo. uh, is just, it's, it's smart. And it's sort of, it's sort of like, you know, what I can't remember the name of the publication. I think it's us world or something, you know, what they do with universities, uh, that is a huge business. That is yep. a ton of money in that where, you know, they rate, you, you know, business schools and the number one business school gets to say that the number one business school. And yep. that is, there's a ton of money in that. Forbes's business with Statista is massive. I mean, absolutely massive. Like that's what, that's what I think in my eyes were a little bit big because I saw some of the IOs that these people were paying for Forbes and stuff. And I was like, wow, this is crazy. But the thing is that people have to remember is that, and I think this is where we got it wrong is that, you have to have a brand that's really established before you do that, which I don't think our brand isn't established, but I just don't think we're at that level yet that we could, that we could charge, right? Like as much as we thought we could charge from a licensing standpoint, we're still new It's our first year as a full-time business. So that's the one thing I would, I would say is if you want to get into that model, you just got to be careful and, and make sure that you, you feel like your brand is in a strong position to do so. But I, again, I believe there's a lot of value in creating opportunities, especially from a award level that people don't have to pay for upfront because it creates like rising 25. Anyone can win best employers in sports. Anyone can win. Like we had best employers and it just, it gives a better smattering of the, or a better like picture of the true industry. We had a team uh, a minor league baseball team in Wisconsin win or Wisconsin timber rattlers. I had never heard of them in my entire life, to be honest with you, right? Like before this, but I went and I went and I looked at all their LinkedIn profiles of all their employees, 15 years with the team, 17 years with the team, 16 years with the team, right? They had built something truly special. And so for them, like that's an award that I think really makes a lot of sense. And and it was cool to see them win because the one thing that I've always been hesitant and I haven't liked, and again, this is feedback that we've heard is that having to pay for stuff up front really limits the opportunities 
And my thought is like, okay, if we can build something with an IP that's creative enough, we can get a brand to sponsor it and we can do something with a licensing thing that if people want to take advantage of, they can. And if they do that, we'll, we'll make the money that we need to make and we'll keep it moving and everyone will be happier. And I think that's the one thing that, you know, again, it, it's so easy to just say, hey, pay for this or hey, pay to apply. But I think from a brand value and a brand equity standpoint, and again, why we've been able to take advantage of some of these things is because everything we've done has been pretty much free because I've challenged us with like, all right, let's make it free and then let's go sell it. If we can't sell it, we shouldn't even be doing it. And my whole thing is we have to believe in a product and a, and a, and a, and a piece of IP enough to then sell that to someone because we know that it's good. If, if we sell it to a brand and people can win it and they don't have to feel like they, you know, they had to fill out a long application or they had to pay or there were some other, you know, forces at work we would be in a good spot. And that's, you know, that's how it all shook out. Is front office sports profitable today? Depends on when we're talking about pandemic side of things. We should be. I'm not, I mean, you know, this year we, we, we definitely, we definitely should be. Um, we would have been more so uh, without the pandemic, right? Like we got smacked in the face. Everyone got smacked in the face. Um, I think luckily we got smacked in the face in the sense that we didn't actually have a true, <laughs> truly built out events business. We had rising 25 and best employers, but they weren't like fully built out events. So we didn't get ads hurt there. Um, but yeah, depending on how the rest of Q3 and Q4 goes, we should definitely be in a good spot. Um, and we would have been far and away in a good spot if we would have not had the pandemic, but I would, I would consider, I would consider it a win. I mean, we'll probably see, you know, we'll still probably see revenue up in the, revenue growth of hundred percent plus this year. Um, which again is still great, but it wasn't as high as we thought it was going to be. So, uh, we just have to keep executing again. That's, that's all it comes down to at this point. We've, we've gotten the early first year kinks out. We've gotten the brand and the site to a place where we feel is premium and people think about it. It's like, Oh, that's, that's really professional. That's on the level of the politicos and the wall street journals and the Bloomberg's of the world. And now it just comes down to okay, can we sell this? Can we continue to execute it? And can we continue to grow the audience? As long as we do that, we'll be in a good spot. Let's move past COVID. Let's, you know, fast forward three years. Where do you see front office sports? Uh, and and one of the things I'd, I'd like you to answer is right now you're you're completely free, which, you know, there are some who say that, you know, media businesses need a subscription. There are others who say they don't. Do you see front office sports with a subscription? Yeah, I mean... I think, I think if we execute it right, I think we really will be considered a Politico sports, right? Like I, 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 I hope someone from Politico listens to this because, like, I say this with like my whole chest. Like, I really do believe like that our model and what they've created for politics is something that can be replicated in our space. Maybe not to the I would say the same level. Politics is, you know, obviously a much much larger play, but I think there's still something there. And so, if we do have a paid product, because right now our competitive advantage is being free. I love that competitive advantage. It allows us to scale. It allows us to grow audience. It allows us to build our brand much further and faster than we would be if we had a paid side. If we have a paid product, it has to be something that is truly a product or truly an offering that is not fully baked and based in content. Like I personally never want to, if, if we get to the point, in my opinion, if we get to the point, in my opinion, where I, or we have to turn on a paywall for content and we say, okay, you can only read three articles and then you have to pay. I don't think we've done our job well. I think we can go out and figure out ways to drive revenue by building other franchises, by doing different things and, and the like, where we can keep everything free. 
if we're going to build a product, I want it to be a paid product. That's like, feels more like Politico pro than, than just what would be a traditional content sub to like a, a wall street journal or a Bloomberg or something like that. So that's the approach. I think if we do it right, I think, you know, it's, it's crazy, but outside of really today, if you look at it outside of ESPN, which they're, they're, linear or their website property is just really part of, you know, something that helps support their linear business, right? Their linear business is the big business. ESPN, Bleacher Report, and a few others, Athletic, right? There's Yahoo, I guess, but like, there's really not that many national sports sites anymore. Sports Illustrated, I guess, but it's very, it's very different than it used to be. So there's really no, not very many national sports sites. So I think in three years, there's an opportunity if we execute to be one of the top five to 10 national sports sites in, in the U S from, but from the way we do it, right. The business side of things. I think that's, I think that's really fascinating. Um, and I think that's where things can, can net out. It just comes down to, as we've discussed at length execution. And if we can stick to the fact that we're building something that's, you know, a prosumer brand, that's not just for people who are professionals, but that we can build it for the consumers too. Cause I think that's going to be, that's going to be what's going to take us the farthest, but if we don't get that right, that's also can be what keeps us smaller than where we think we can get to. All right. So last, last two quick questions. First thing is what is one thing you wish you had known when you got started that you now know? Uh, it's going to take a lot longer than you think. I think that's the, I think that's the one thing I think that media as a whole and it's been proven time and time again is that it's just in the early days it is a slog and it takes a lot longer than you think and that it's 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 a very interesting world and the fact that it's one of the weird businesses where you have to build an audience before you can sell anything it's not like you can it's not like i can build a product then sell the product immediately and then i'm like all right cool i'm I'm getting money it's like you have to spend time building an audience um so that's one of the things i would I would do. I think I would have. I would have focused a little bit early on too. Um, just more focused on a tradition on two or three things. I mean, we launched a, a digital studios for absolutely no reason, like in 2016, because I was just trying to do anything and everything. Like, it's just a, it was a waste of time, right? If we would have focused more on launching a newsletter earlier, could it have been better, right? Or or what it was. So I would I would say patience and focus because I think really good, strong media brands, I, I, I would say take 10 years to, to really get to a point where they feel like a strong media brand before they even start to become more so like super influential, right? Because especially when you're nowadays, like you're dealing with so much noise, you're dealing with so much opportunities, people getting content from very different places that is, it's, it takes a while to break through. It takes a while to become a habit. And then once it becomes a habit, it takes a while to become a trusted source. And then once you're a trusted source, then you are a really good spot. But like, to, to go from media company to, to habit for people to a trusted source that people are reading four, five, six, seven, eight, nine times, 10 times a day or a week, that takes five, 10 years. And, and that's just the truth, right? Like it's just the fact of the matter. And so I think those are the two things that would have helped a little bit more. And then, you know, controlling what you can control. I think I spent a lot of time, you know, in 2017 when I was trying to get it all started, like, just looking at what everyone else was doing and comparing myself and being like, Oh, we can do better. We can do this. We can do that. At the time it was like, you know, you have no money and you're working three jobs. Like how much can you actually do? And so I think that was the other thing too, is that you just gotta, you gotta do that. And I guess maybe if you want a fourth thing, I know you asked for two things. The fourth thing is I got so lucky 
in having Russ, who I mentioned previously, who's my number two. He was the only person who ever reached out to me through Miami. We've been doing it since Miami. We've just had such a good professional relationship. Like you just got to find someone else to be there with you in the trenches. And I, I, I quite frankly, I can't say enough about, about Russ and now the rest of the team that we've, that we've added, right. You just have to find people who want to be in the trenches. It's not sexy. It's a day in and day out grind. And those people, as long as you treat everyone well, it's going to be some of the funnest years. Everyone gets to accelerate their careers, take on more responsibility. And like we have, perfect example, Paige, our client success, or she's now doing clients. She was our events person, pivoted to client success because there was no more events really with COVID. We were planning to launch other events, pivoted to client success is absolutely crushing it for us. And so I just think that's the one thing too, is the adaptability of, of the team and making sure you put them in a position that, you know, that was never something that her background was. And quite frankly, she's done an amazing job at it. So I know that was, again, more than two things, but, you know, I think all important. If you enjoyed this episode, hit subscribe and give it a five-star rating with your thoughts. If you want even more, sign up for the newsletter at amediaoperator.com. Each Tuesday, I analyze the latest media news. And on Fridays, I do deep dives into specific strategic and tactical topics about building media businesses. Thanks for listening and see you next week.